welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. My name is VJ. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, so excited to be with you and be with you in this particular time and in this particular series called Revolutionary that we are looking at. The life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus that revolutionized his world literally by turning it upside down. Um, And that he continues to do that today. And so we've been journeying through his life and his teaching, seeing how Jesus continues to bring his revolutionary results to our lives and to our world. And it's impossible to talk about the revolutionary impact of Jesus without talking about his compassion and his kindness. Now you might say, oh yeah, you know, Jesus was kind and, and maybe this is about Jesus was kind and we should be too. And wouldn't the world be a better place if we were all just a little bit more kind? Yes, it would. But you don't need to come to church to hear that. You don't need to listen to the rest of this talk to hear that. I don't, don't turn it off yet. You don't need to read the Bible and know anything about Jesus to know that. You can walk by the elementary school in your neighborhood. And maybe there's a sign, you know, that says May's Empathy Month. Or uh, you can pick up a book off a kid's bookshelf or in the library that reads some animated story about kindness. Um, you could look up on the Weather Network and find a video of a dog being showing kindness to a cat. <laughs> or, you know, a story we read a little while ago about a pride of lions who protected a little girl who was being kidnapped from a group of rebel forces in the country where she was. Incredible. All acts of kindness. In a sense, kindness isn't revolutionary. It's everywhere. Now, I know it's not everywhere it needs to be. I know we need more of it, and all of that is true. But kindness was not the revolution that Jesus brought. It wasn't kindness that made the disciples think years later, oh my gosh, we have to write this down, these stories that we've been telling, that we've been um, reminding ourselves. Remember when Jesus did this? Remember when Jesus said that? We have to write this down. It wasn't mere kindness that made them write it down. That wasn't what was so revolutionary about Jesus. It wasn't kindness that brought a revolution which swept through Rome and the Roman Empire, which brought the emperors even at points to say, we've never seen anything like this. It wasn't mere kindness, something more. And so that's good news for us because if we're honest, even though we're all aware of the fact that we could all be a little bit more kind and the world needs a little bit more kindness, there is already kindness in our world and yet our world is not fully healed, not fully restored, not fully living out, in a sense, the results of the revolution that Jesus brought, which we've talked about, a a revolution of nonviolence and reconciliation and peace and equality and care for the poor and the weak and the sick and freedom from evil spirits. We haven't seen that everywhere. We need something more than kindness. We need the revolution of Jesus. Now, we've been using one of the biographical accounts of Jesus' life uh, written down by one of his followers, Matthew, as our guide to this revolution that Jesus brought. And we come to a point in the story that um, is a, is a miracle story. It's amazing. If there's fireworks enough in the story that might actually distract us from what the main, what the most revolutionary part of the story was. Uh, just a bit of context for you as we uh, look into it today. The story, uh, the count happens uh, right after Jesus has heard some really difficult, troubling, and painful news. It says to us that um, Jesus found out that his cousin John had been killed. Now, Jesus' cousin John, we know at some points they grew up together. They spent time together. We don't know how much, but they knew each other. They were close, and family relationships were really important in those days. 
We know also that John was a bit of a kind of a bizarre revolutionary prophet in his own right, <laughs> but he wasn't like Jesus in a sense, very sort of hung out with all the common people in, in you know, everyday places. John was out in the desert. He was, a, people thought he was a little bit crazy and he spoke very um, strongly to say to people, hey, you got to change your way of living. In particular, he spoke to the religious and political elite, the people who had power and wealth. And he was very strong with them and harsh with them, in fact, for the ways that they were using and abusing their power, the ways that they were being a destructive force in the lives of the people, that God was not happy with the way they were using their power. And in fact, some of their choices were not only destructive, but immoral. And John was so vocal about it that Herod, the king of the Jews in that time frame, who was kind of a puppet king of Rome, killed John. He executed him. First he imprisoned him, and then he beheaded him. And so Jesus finds out the news that John has been executed. And this is disturbing to him not only because it was his cousin, <clears throat> but also because Herod, the king who killed John, had heard about Jesus and was saying to his court, hey, is this John come back from the dead, this Jesus guy? Which actually put Jesus' life in danger as well. And so we can assume that Jesus was not only uh, grieving and upset because he had lost his cousin, but it was actually probably wrestling with some fear that this could happen to him and knowing that that's actually where his story was heading. It was heading to capital execution. And so the scriptures actually tell us that because of that, he withdrew to have some time by himself. And I want you to listen to the scripture today as Matthew describes for us what happens when Jesus got that news and how he chose to handle it. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to the heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. I told you that this story had some fireworks in it, uh, which actually threatened to distract us from the main point of what was going on. We see Jesus in this place withdrawing to try to get away um, from you know, where he was to do to, it says, a more lonely place to have some time on his own with him and his inner circle, his friends, probably to deal with this news that he had heard from John. And instead, what they find is when they get to this lonely place, it's not lonely at all. It says that there were thousands of people there. Now, Matthew actually lists 5,000 men in addition to women and children. So you're talking probably eight or 9,000 people. 
And they're there and Jesus spends the whole day with them healing and probably teaching. And then at one point, he actually um, decides he wants to feed them because they need something to eat. And they were in a lonely place. They were a desolate place. They weren't near a village or town where it would have been easy to get food. And we'll find out a little bit later, it probably wouldn't have been easy for them, this group of people to get food anyways. And so Jesus takes one meal of five loaves and two fish. The word loaves probably refers to a couple of pieces of bread and fish. So enough for one meal that some of his disciples had and multiplies it and feeds 8,000 people. It would be like, I want you to imagine, any of you have been to the Rogers Center where the Blue Jays play baseball? I remember back in the day when we used to go to live sporting events. Oh God, let that happen again soon. <laughs> um, imagine you go to the game with your family of five or you and four friends, and you go to the game. It's one of those like um, packed days at the Rogers Center. There's 40,000 people in there. And you get your hot dog and your fries, and you sit down in your seats, the five of you there. Each of you's got a hot dog and some french fries. And you look up at the massive jumbotron screen that's there in the stadium. And you see that the five of you are on screen. You and your hot dogs. And then it says on the screen, hey, the rest of us are hungry and the concession stands are closed and we don't have any money to buy food. And you suddenly realize that 40,000 people are looking at you going, hey, can we have some of that? <laughs> like that's how absurd this would have been. That's how crazy this miracle was. That Jesus takes something so small. Like even if you wanted to share your hot dogs and fries with those 40,000, it's not going very far. I mean, you couldn't even cut it up into that many pieces. That's the magnitude of what Jesus did with one meal for about 8,000 people. But that is not the most uh, revolutionary part of that. I mean, certainly it's an incredible miracle. But as we look closer in this, we actually see the significance of what Jesus was doing, just how revolutionary it was. In particular, the kind of people that Jesus did this for. Now, kindness and compassion in Jesus' day wouldn't have been a strange thing. It's not strange or revolutionary in itself that someone would have shown kindness to someone else in need. But I want to explain to you a little bit about how kindness and compassion and generosity worked in that day. And for that, uh, we're going to go over and have a, a little illustration. So this is uh, a Newton's cradle. I took it from Gideon. He got it. He really likes it. I'm going to explain to you something. That kindness and compassion in Jesus' day was based on a principle known as reciprocity. Reciprocity. Now, you may be familiar with what that word means, but even if not, I'm going to explain it to you. It's this idea, right, of giving and taking, the back and forth. Okay, so compassion, kindness, and generosity in those days operated on a few different aspects um, on, uh, based on reciprocity. Now, one kind of reciprocity that would have been common was generalized reciprocity. Now, this was the kind of reciprocity you showed with people who were in your family. Your immediate family, your blood relatives, your uh, extended family, next of kin, or people that were considered family from your same people group. Oftentimes, in some of those towns and villages, you might have an entire village made up of one family and all the extended relatives are part of it. Now, in those cases, you had a family member who needed something from you, something you had. You had maybe uh, a job for them. You had a house that they needed. You had food. You had wealth. You had honor. You had an opportunity. You had privilege. You had power. You had influence. And so, you would take that and be willing to share it with them. Now, even if they didn't pay you back right away and, and reciprocate that um, 
that giving, that generosity, that compassion. You knew, hey, we're family. You might even say that. Maybe we're familiar with that phrase even now. We say, hey, it's family, that you would do that for family because you know at some point in time, you're going to need something from them and they are going to be willing to share it with you. That's how generalized reciprocity worked. And you don't need to say, hey, are you going to pay me back? We know we're good for it. We're family. We're always going to help each other out. Sometimes I'm in need. Sometimes you're in need. But that's how it works. That's what generalized reciprocity was. Now, there were times when people outside your family, outside your people group, outside your next of kin um, needed something, but they had something that you needed. So you had uh, a house that they uh, needed to stay in because they were traveling through, but they were a person that had means, that had wealth, or they had honor, they had influence, or you had influence, and they had something that you wanted. And so what that was called was balanced reciprocity. You made sure you knew it was actually an agreement. Hey, I'm going to do this for you, and you're going to pay me back in some other way. And we're going to make sure it's balanced. It's back and forth. And all of that was laid out beforehand. It's an agreement. It's not family, but it's an agreement. With, you want to see that again? With people who have something that we need. Hey, Newton, breaking down on me here. That was balanced reciprocity. But with everyone else, someone who wasn't your family, someone who wasn't your next of kin, wasn't a blood relative, wasn't from your people group, someone who didn't have something that you needed. They didn't have honor. They didn't have importance. They didn't have power. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have property. They didn't have tools or cattle or anything. That uh, meant you were going to engage with them in a negative reciprocal relationship, which was simply to say, you are going to take as much as you can get from them without giving anything in return. Reciprocity was how the world that Jesus came into worked. Knowing that, it actually helps us realize just how revolutionary Jesus' miracle in this account was. Because who were the people that Jesus was showing generosity, kindness, care, and compassion towards? This was to the crowds. The crowds. And the crowds particularly see that referenced many times in Jesus' miracles and his teaching. But in this particular case, for sure, here's what we know that would have been the makeup of this crowd. It says that they were in a desolate place and people had come from all over, different villages, different towns, probably some different tribal or ethnic groups. So these were strangers. These were not people Jesus knew. They weren't his next of kin. They weren't family. He didn't know where they were coming from. Not only that, they were likely poor. And here's why we can say that. The flow of money in first century Palestine moved from the countryside and villages towards the cities and the empire. The, the poorest people lived in the villages and towns and their money went to fund the religious center in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the city. That's where the wealthy kind of center of religious power was. And it went to fund the empire, the Roman empire, which was we've talked about before, was a heavy taxation on the people. So the people in the towns and villages were the poorest people in this economy. 
Not only that, we know, and we know actually from other accounts, that the re- part of the reason they followed Jesus was because they needed something from him. In this case, they even got fed. Many of them didn't have money. That's why they, and they weren't working at jobs during the day. They had time to follow Jesus around because there was no social assistance. There was no other way to help them through the fact that they didn't have a job or they had lost a farm or something like that. And we know he healed many of them who were sick, which in those days, if you heard me say before, if you were sick, it probably meant you were poor too. There was no modern medicine. There weren't hospitals. Um, and if you were sick, it was uh, usually with a kind of sickness that would have taken, that would have been permanent or you were born with, whether you were lame or you were blind or you were deaf. And it would have prohibited you from even having work in part because people thought you were cursed if you were sick. And so this was the makeup of the crowd that Jesus is ministering to. They're strangers, they're poor, and they're sick. And it says Jesus comes and meets with them to serve them. Now you have to think the disciples in this case would have looked at this crowd based on their world of reciprocity and thought, hey, are these people that can help the cause of Jesus? You know, they're going to have some power that we're going to need later because Jesus is going to, you know, start a revolution. Nope. Are these people that are going to help us, you know, financially fund this ministry and actually pay for us to eat and stuff? Because we've all left our jobs. Remember, we used to be fishermen. We used to be tax collectors. We don't have means of income anymore. Are they going to help us financially if Jesus helps them? Nope. Are these people with a kind of a power and influence and importance uh, or they belong, you know, they have honorable family backgrounds, whatever. They live in Jerusalem. They're part of the, you know, they're connected to the empire. No, none of this. So the Jesus disciples sort of look at this, these people are not going to help our cause. And yet Jesus decides these are the ones he's going to help. It was revolutionary for them and for that time. Because Jesus was basically deciding to help those who couldn't help him back. And not just to help those who couldn't help him back. Jesus didn't just write a check. It describes him getting relationally involved in helping those who couldn't help him back. Getting relationally involved in helping those who could not help him back. Why do I say that? Well, it says that he spent the whole day with them healing them. Well, how long does it take to spend a day with 8,000 people healing them? All day. And we actually know they had spent the entire day and it came to the end of the day. And that's when the disciples said, okay, Jesus, we've been doing this all day. You know, the day's over now. So now time for them to go home and for us to have some time by ourselves and for us to eat and then for them to eat somewhere else. And Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them here. And what does he do? He takes the five loaves and two fish, he breaks it and he distributes it. And what did they have to do to distribute it? They had to walk among the people. They had to get relationally involved with them, distributing it, and not only distributing the food to 8,000 people, but collecting it after. Jesus was showing a revolutionary way to look at the people that were right in front. The disciples saw nothing and no one of any importance and any value. There was nothing that crowd could give them back. There was nothing that they could help them in return. And Jesus says, no, we are going to get relationally involved in helping those who cannot help us. It is still revolutionary for us. See, you and I have an inclination. Yes, we want to, we'll, we'll be kind and generous to people. And we're very, perhaps kind and generous to people who look like, you know, they, they deserve to be helped. Or people within our own family. Or our own blood relatives. Or people that we would say are like us. They're in our circle. They're in our, you know, they're in our sphere. They, they're like us. They're in the same um, social class as us. They're in the same neighborhood. They're in the same family. They're in the same workplace. They're people or that we just feel people uh, that we're warm to that we're willing to help. And Jesus takes us far beyond the comforts of the borders where they say, oh, these are the people that we're called to help. 
And if we say, oh, well, I, I help people that don't give me anything back, well, sometimes we get a, a tax receipt back. <laughs> sometimes we get the feeling of like, oh, yeah, I feel good about myself because I've done a good deed. I've done some things that are, that, are, um, that are valuable, and I can feel good about that. Jesus pushes us and pushes his disciples beyond the borders of seeing the people who were right in front of him that nobody else thought worthy of helping, that nobody else had the time for, that nobody else would have used their power and their influence and anything else they had in the service of them. And Jesus does. It's revolutionary. And this is what one professor of philosophy says it like this. He says, if you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion? I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, and orphanages for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying any institution or any social service or any act of generosity and compassion towards people that cannot pay anyone back, helping those who cannot help in return, giving to those who cannot give back, he says almost always has its roots historically in the movement of Jesus. Jesus was the revolutionary who started that. This was the first aspect of the revolution of kindness and compassion that Jesus was bringing here. But the disciples didn't get it at first, right? They're staring 8,000 people in the face and they're saying to Jesus, well, better send them home. You know, we can't do anything about it. Didn't even occur to them. You might say, well, BJ, come on. Like, that's like the five people with the hot dogs and the 40,000 people. Of course it didn't occur to them. They didn't have anything. They couldn't, they couldn't have met this need. Why would it ever occur to them to do something about it? And this actually brings out the second and maybe even more revolutionary aspect of the story. See, wasn't Jesus just helping those who couldn't help him back? It wasn't Jesus just giving to those who couldn't give back. It was Jesus giving to those who couldn't give back when he himself had nothing to give. Giving to those who can't give back to you when you yourself have nothing to give. Remember the context of this story. Where did it start? With Jesus trying to leave, Jesus trying to get away from people, to deal with the grief and the fear and the complexity of having to reflect on the fact that his own life was probably headed towards execution. Emotionally, we can say, relationally, spiritually, Jesus did not have it in him to serve. We know that because he left. He tried to withdraw. He didn't have it in him to serve. He didn't have it in him. He didn't have enough spiritually, emotionally, relationally in that time to give. The disciples didn't have enough physically. They literally didn't have enough. They hadn't even brought enough for themselves. They clearly weren't thinking they were going to be in the wilderness that day for the entire day, that they were going to be far enough away from a town or a village to even get some food because they didn't even bring any with them. Never mind give food for thousands of other people. There was nothing in them to give. Which is why they said, okay, Jesus, we better send these people away. They need food and we don't have it. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to invite you to give to those who can't give back, even when you have nothing to give. And Jesus takes the little, the pathetic little, the little that they would have been, you know, in another account of this same miracle, one of the gospel writers says the disciples were like, 
this isn't it. Like, this is all we have. Like, they weren't even going to mention it because it's basically like nothing in the face of this massive need. And they give out of their emptiness, out of their poverty to Jesus. And he multiplies it and he feeds the thousands. Friends, this is even more revolutionary than going beyond the borders of the people, of the who we feel comfortable and motivated to give to. This is now taking us into a place where it doesn't make any sense. See, giving when we have enough makes sense to us. Right? Giving when we are going to have leftover makes sense to us. If I have extra time, I feel like I have capacity in my life. I have some margin. I have extra hours that I could volunteer. I have emotional energy. I, I feel good. I feel like I have energy. I feel like I'm not being drained by my relationships, my work. I have t- stuff to give to other people. I have a big house or I have a big backyard or I have some money and I have enough leftover. That makes sense to us. But giving when we don't feel like we have enough, giving when we ourselves are empty doesn't make any sense to us. We think how could we do that? And yet Jesus not only invites us to give to those who cannot give back, but to give even when we feel like we have nothing to give. Now, I know this is a very troubling <laughs> kind of revolutionary thought. It, it does turn some things upside down in us. Maybe it brings up all kinds of questions. And I think it's okay for us to sit in the trouble of that just for a couple of moments. And yet knowing there are a couple things that actually help us, help us deal with this trouble. One of them is actually the way things end up in the story, which I want to, we often miss, but I want to bring to our attention in a few moments as we close here. But before we do, the other way that we are invited out of some of this complexity and trouble when we find Jesus asking us to give who cannot give back, even when we feel like we have nothing to give is remembering that that is how God has given to us. That this is what the love of God, the revolutionary compassion and kindness of God has been like to us. There's a song we sing often here at our church called Reckless Love. And reckless love is probably the best way to describe what Jesus was just doing here. It was reckless. It was going well beyond the borders of what was comfortable and and who we considered family. Essentially, Jesus was redefining who's in your inner circle. That's a reckless kind of way. He's basically saying all of these people, strangers, poor people, sick people, anyone in need is now to be considered to you like family. That's a reckless way of loving. And it's reckless to give yourself away when you have nothing to give. (laughs) And yet the repeated line is in the song is, still you give yourself away. Still you give yourself away. And so we're going to pause and just listen, and you can sing if you know it. But just to sit in and experience that this is the kind of love and compassion and kindness that God has shown to me and to you.
when we consider the invitation of Jesus to go beyond the borders of our well-defined circles of who we show kindness and compassion to, to actually even be able to give of our time and our energy and our talents and our money when we feel like we don't have enough to give. We are motivated to do that, not only by the fact that that's how the love of God is shown to us, but also by this. And it's something actually we often ignore in the midst of fireworks of this kind of miracle story. It says that when Jesus broke the bread and multiplied it, he had the disciples go and distribute it. And it said as they distributed it, the tens, the hundreds, the thousands, it says, ate as much as they wanted. Okay, so these thousands of people are now full. They ate as much as they wanted. And if these are people who didn't always have three meals a day or whatever, they really only had two meals a day then, that this was the one meal they were getting, they ate a lot. And it says that, Matthew says, everyone ate as much as they could. And then there were baskets full left over. Not just the little lunch sack left over. Baskets of bread and fish left over. How many baskets were left over? Just say it if you know it. Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. <laughs> it's like Jesus was saying to them, hey, when I invite you to join me in going beyond the borders of your well-defined circles of family, to realize that anyone in need can be treated like family. When I invite you to go beyond giving what you can afford and giving when you feel like you have lots left over to actually trusting me and giving even when you don't have anything to give, I will not forget you. I will not leave you empty. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? I mean, when this whole story started out, the disciples didn't even have enough lunch for the 12 of them. And in the end, Jesus says, I've given you each a basket full of more than you can even eat in a few days. It was his way of saying, if you follow me, I will not leave you empty. And so, as we think about that in our day, in our time, what does that mean for us as we are invited, like disciples, to follow Jesus in this way? I want to encourage you to begin the conversation with Jesus, first praying about who and then praying about what. Right? Jesus was really faithful to tell the disciples what he wanted. He directed them. No, these people. Don't send them away. It's these ones. And give what you have. What do you have? He asked them a question. So our part is to open the door to that conversation. It's, okay, Jesus, who? Who am I meant to love and care and serve in this time? It may be people right in front of your nose you have not even been paying attention to. Or people that you've said, no, not them. I can't. People that you've not, you've realized your circle's been pretty tight and Jesus is saying, hey, there's other people. So ask him, Lord, who? And then say, what? What do you want me to give? For some of us, it may be our time. Maybe we've been hanging on tightly to our time. We actually have a lot of it, but we aren't actually being generous and kind with it. Or our talents or abilities to actually say, I can serve. I can give what I have. 
Some of us maybe we're giving all of our time only to the people that are paying us for it. And that's taking up all our time. We say, well, I don't have any left over. Well, maybe it's a time to actually trust Jesus and say, I can give when I don't think I have enough to give. I can take away some. Or feel like, okay, I'm going to try to give. I don't feel like I have enough time, Jesus, but I'm going to trust you. This is all I have to give. Perhaps it's financially that you feel like God prompting you on this. Whether you feel like you have a lot left over or very little left over. If you're new to your faith journey with Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus left, you may just want to start small and give something you can afford. Something you have a little extra of, time, energy, talents, or money. But if you've been journeying with Jesus and you've seen and you're growing in your sense of how faithful and trustworthy he is, maybe you want to take a bigger risk. Maybe you want to forego something. Redirect some time. Redirect some energy. Redirect some money. Maybe something you had saved for yourself or something you're actually going to give. Maybe you're going to sell something that is important to you. Maybe suddenly you feel like, well, I really need this, but I'm going to trust Jesus and give it away. It's not my job to tell you as a pastor what you should do. It is my job to encourage you to go to Jesus. And here's why. Because the revolution of kindness and generosity and compassion that Jesus brings to the world, you know where the revolution starts? It starts in here. You know where he starts turning things upside down? In us, in our hearts, in his, the hearts of his disciples. He begins to turn things upside down. He begins to change the way we see the people in the world around us. He begins to change our attitudes and our thinking that we can only give when we're going to have enough left over to say, I can even give when I don't think I have anything to give. That's where the revolution begins. And we begin to grow and experience what it's like to see Jesus inviting us in and at the same time saying, I will never leave you empty. to the thing.